Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. All right, well, with a fresh year comes a fresh sermon series that I cannot even begin to tell you how excited I am to be able to launch in today. We're going to be march very deliberately through the Gospel of Mark which as we look at the books of the Bible, we find that Mark is the second book of the New Testament. It's sandwiched in there between there between Matthew and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what are known as synoptic gospels, which is a fancy term which simply means they tell the story of Jesus from a similar point of view or similar perspective. And if, if you look at the page numbers, you'll notice that Mark is the shortest of these Gospels. But don't let its brevity fool you. It is packed with meaning, as we are going to find out. And in fact, some have even argued that Mark is the most important book in the whole world. That's a pretty bold statement, right? Mark, potentially the most important book in the whole world. Now, why do you think someone would say that? How could that possibly be true? Well, those who would say this, they assert that Mark was the very first gospel. And as such, it was used as a source by both Matthew and Luke in their accounts, in their synoptic gospels. And so because potentially of Mark's influence in such a profound and important way, Mark's importance cannot be overstated. It is very foundational to our faith and our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Now, originally I gave this series a title. Um, I put it out there on Facebook a while back. Mark, the Gospel of Servanthood, which, as we will see, is a factually true title. But I also thought it's kind of boring, you know, it's kind of bland. It lacks some zip or some energy. And so um, I scrapped that title, and in search of something more engaging, I've since changed the title to Mark the Show Me Gospel, okay? Mark the Show Me Gospel. Much better, right? And even if you, yeah, thank you, thank you. Even if you disagree, just go along with it, okay? So why am I calling Mark the Show Me Gospel? Any brothers and sisters from the state of Missouri here? Oh, Missouri. Missouri. What is Missouri known as? The show me state. And actually, they don't even say Missouri. How do, how do you pronounce the state? Missouri. Missouri. Yes, Missouri, as they say, the, and the locals there. Um, the show me state, why do they call it that? Well, sometime, at some point in history, um, they came to be known as a people who value action over talk, deeds over words, and so does the gospel of Mark. As a matter of fact... Mark emphasizes the works of Jesus more than the words of Jesus. Mark emphasizes the works of Jesus more than the words of Jesus, which is what makes it the show-me gospel. As an example of this, Mark records 18 miracles of Jesus, but only four parables of Jesus. 
And that is in large part why it's the shortest gospel. It doesn't give long accounts of the sermons of Jesus. You know, the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, it takes up three chapters, five, six, and seven. We don't have long, lengthy discourses by Jesus like that in the book of Mark. Rather, Mark gives us focused accounts of the deeds of Jesus. Now, let me tell you why this is so important for us today, and I think it is. I think Mark is hitting us right where we need to be right now. This is so important for us today and why the gospel is so relevant for us today is that we live in a show-me world, don't we? We live in a show-me world. Remember that famous scene from the movie Jerry Maguire? Where Tom Cruise yells into the phone, show me the money! Which means, hey, put up or shut up. Show me that your words have substance, that they are more than just talk. And and so when I say that we live in a show-me world, we live in a world that, yes, by all means, needs to hear the teachings of Jesus. They absolutely do. But it is also a world that must see and experience the works of Jesus, which is a biblical concept after all. Does not the scripture tell us, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I believe with all my heart that when the world today sees the works of Jesus through us, then they will be receptive to the words of Jesus. Let me say that again. When the world today sees the works of Jesus through us, then they will be receptive to the words of Jesus. Why? Because we live in a show-me culture, a show-me world, and Mark is a show-me gospel, so therefore I believe it has a lot to teach us. Well, today we're going to explore the introduction to the book. We're going to look at things like author, audience, theme, key verse, key word, and we're just going to get started in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Somebody asked me this morning, how long do you think this is going to take? I said, oof, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. So let's first begin by looking at the author, which actually is a very fascinating story, a very fascinating story. The book itself doesn't say who wrote it, but the testimony of the early church is that John Mark is the author of this gospel. The testimony of the early church is that John Mark is the author of this gospel. Now, who is this guy, and why does he have two names? Well, he has a Hebrew name. His Hebrew name is John. And he has a Greek name, which is Mark. John Mark was a Jew living in a Roman culture that spoke what language? Greek. Thus, the two names. He has a Hebrew name. He has a Greek name. Well, what do we know about this guy named John Mark? Well, the first thing we know is that he was a rich kid from Jerusalem. He was a rich kid from Jerusalem. We first encounter him in Acts chapter 12, where the situation was this. Um, King Herod had the apostle Peter thrown into prison in Jerusalem. And to make sure that Peter was going nowhere, Herod had Peter surrounded by 16 soldiers and also shackled or chained to two of them. Humanly speaking, Peter's not going anywhere. Now, I find it interesting. How did Peter respond to this terrible, awful, stressful situation? He went to sleep. He went to sleep completely at peace, That's the kind of peace I want, right? It's like, hey, 16 soldiers, I'm shackled, I'm in a dungeon, no biggie. I'm in God's hands. No biggie. God's got it. 
Well, when Peter was arrested, the church in Jerusalem, they began to pray and to pray earnestly. And guess what? God answered. God answered. Um, God sent an angel. The angel woke Peter up. Peter's chains fell off his wrists. The angel led Peter out of prison, past the oblivious guards, and through the locked iron gate. Now put yourself in Peter's sandals for a minute. Where would you go if you were suddenly let free from prison? Well, it tells us in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. It says, He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. So let's connect all these dots. This woman Mary had a house large enough for the gathering of the early church. Some think that this was possibly the site of the Last Supper and of Pentecost. Don't know for sure, but it's a big house. Believers, Jerusalem, very possible. And she has a son named John Mark. Now, one of the things we know, if a woman has a house this big that the church there can meet in it, it must be a pretty big house, right? Which means that she was also a woman of some means. Where was her husband? We don't know. All we know is Mary, big house, believers, her son, John Mark. And this John Mark, the early church credits with writing the gospel that now bears his name. Now, think about this. The fact that John Mark grew up in this particular home at this particular time means that he was raised in the epicenter of Christianity in Jerusalem. And he would have been very familiar with all of the key players at that time, including the apostle Peter. All right, And it just may be that John Mark was even discipled by Peter. It just may be that John Mark was discipled by Peter. Why do we think this is possible? 1 Peter 5.13. Peter writes this. He says, She who is at Babylon, which is probably a code name for Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Now, we know that Mark was not Peter's biological son, so what did Peter mean by this? Well, likely that Mark was Peter's spiritual son and that Peter discipled Mark at some point in Jerusalem. So, John Mark was a rich kid from Jerusalem, possibly discipled by Peter. What we do know for sure is he was the cousin of Barnabas. Colossians 4.10, it says. Aristarchus, this is the Apostle Paul writing, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now, you'll remember that for a time, for a season, this guy Barnabas was a ministry partner with the Apostle Paul. They were a team, a missions team. And together, Barnabas and and Paul, they recognized that Barnabas' cousin, John Mark, there's a lot of ministry potential in this guy. And so they confab and they come together and say, hey, let's, let's take this guy with us. And so in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, it says... Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So, Paul and Barnabas recognize ministry potential in John Mark. They bring him from Jerusalem to Antioch. And Antioch, you'll remember, became the mission's headquarters for the early church in that Mediterranean region. And John Mark becomes what you might call an assistant a helper 
to Paul and to Barnabas on this first missionary journey that they embark upon. And, as we see, he accompanied Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey. That trip was exceedingly hard. Yes, it is hard to travel today on Southwest Airlines, right? (laughs) Which, sadly, Christy and I are scheduled to do in March to see Josh and Natalie. So hopefully some things get worked out before then. But even Southwest Airlines is still easier than travel in the first century and something that looked like this, right? Or sometimes having to just hoof it a long distance from one town to the next in the blazing afternoon sun or in the freezing nights with robbers and thieves along the way. This was hard travel, to say nothing of the ministry opposition that they experienced. And I know that the spiritual opposition that Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark experienced was extraordinary. Well, things got so hard on that first missionary journey that John Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas. John Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas. We don't know exactly why we can surmise, but we do know is that Mark quit in the middle. And he went back, this is probably a little crass, he went back to his rich mom in their big house in Jerusalem where things were undoubtedly easier and more comfortable than being on the road with Paul and Barnabas. Well, as Paul and Barnabas eventually got ready for a second missionary journey, John Mark becomes a source of great contention between them. We read in Acts 15, 37, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. In essence, Paul says, ain't no way I'm going to take that deserter with me. The mission is too important. The stakes are too high. But Barnabas, on the other hand, now what's Barnabas' nickname? He's known as the encourager Barnabas, different personality type altogether than Paul, uh, he's all about second chances and redemption. And they just cannot come to agreement. And so they decide to part ways. So John Mark then accompanied Barnabas on their own missionary journey, a journey that we really don't know much about. In fact, we don't hear much about John Mark for about 10 years. But there must have been a lot of really profound stuff that was going on in John Mark's life at that time because the overwhelming evidence from Scripture is that Mark was ultimately, check this out, fully restored to service by Paul. Listen again to that passage we saw earlier in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. This is years after the split took place between Paul and Barnabas. Paul writes, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. It's clear from this verse that John Mark is back in the game, 
and that he is now on good terms with Paul, so much so that Paul tells the Colossians, you need to welcome this guy. Further, listen to how Paul refers to Mark in the book of Philemon. Paul says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. And Paul, what does Paul call them? My fellow workers. Paul says, this guy, Mark, he's my teammate. Don't mess with my teammate. And then in 2 Timothy 4.11, this is the most profound of them, Paul is in prison. He's confronted with the end of his life. And listen to what Paul writes. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. Get Mark. And bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. How beautiful is that? Mark the quitter, the deserter, the one Paul refused to take on the second missionary journey is now the one that Paul wants with him at the end of his life. Why? Because Paul says, oh, he is so useful to me for ministry. So that's what we know about John Mark. That's a pretty interesting story, isn't it? The author of this show me gospel. But there's one nagging question that we got to ask. What authority does John Mark have to write a gospel? After all, he wasn't an apostle. Did you see that? He's not one of the 12. He himself was not even an eyewitness to most all of the things written in his gospel. So why should we trust what he has to say? What makes him an authority? Well, because it is widely understood that John Mark wrote material provided by Peter. It is widely understood that John Mark wrote material provided by Peter. And he was most certainly an eyewitness, was he not? I mean, Peter was even part of that inner circle that Jesus had, composed of Peter, James, and John, which is why, check this out, this is, this is really interesting to me, John Mark was able to give very graphic, vivid, descriptive details in his gospel, which aren't in other gospels. Check out these two examples. First is the account of Jesus welcoming children. Listen to how Matthew describes it, Matthew 18, 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of him, them, Okay. But listen to what Mark says. Mark 9, 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them. Mark gives more detail. I believe important detail. The detail that adds depth and warmth to the story. But how did Mark know that detail if he wasn't there? Well, because Peter was there. And Peter gave the detail to Mark. A second example of this kind of detail is the account of Jesus calming the storm. And Matthew describes it this way in 8.24. Uh, Jesus was asleep, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. But listen to what Mark writes. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Again, Mark adds a vivid detail that Matthew doesn't. From where did that detail come, especially if Mark wasn't there? From Peter. So that is the author. That's the, by far the longest section in our discussion today. Let's look at the audience, the audience to whom Mark is writing. The Gospel of Mark is written primarily to Gentile believers in Rome who are facing pressure and living out their faith. The Gospel of Mark is written primarily to Gentile believers in Rome who are facing pressure and living out their faith. And as persecution increased for these believers, they were in need of some encouragement. 
And what better way to be encouraged than with a fresh account of how Jesus himself lived in the face of great pressure and persecution and did so victoriously. So these Roman Gentile believers themselves would be inspired to persevere to the end. Now it is worth asking the question, Chad, how do we know that the Gospel of Mark was written primarily for a Gentile audience? And when we say Gentile, that simply means non-Jewish. Where did that idea come from? Well, there are, in fact, some very important internal clues in the book. For example, Mark explains Jewish terms and customs. Mark explains Jewish terms and customs. So he'll refer to something that is of a Jewish nature, and then he'll tell what it is and what it's about, and he'll define it, and he'll describe it. If it was a Jewish audience, would he need to do that? No, they already know, okay? But a Gentile audience, they would need that further explanation. And further, Mark uses Roman and Latin terms, and guess what? He doesn't explain those. He just uses them because his audience would already know what they meant. All of which points to the fact that Mark is writing primarily for Gentiles. Does that mean that a Jewish person would have no benefit to the book of Mark? Of course not. There's, there's a lot there they could benefit from. But I, again, I think it's important for us because we are typically here. Are we Jews or Gentiles? We're Gentiles, okay? Which makes the gospel of Mark especially relevant to us. So that's the author, the audience. Let's talk about the theme. Is there some consistent thread that can be traced throughout the book? And the answer is yes. Yes, there is. And it is this. Mark presents Jesus as the ultimate servant. Mark presents Jesus as the ultimate servant. Jesus did not come as the conquering king that the Jews expected. He did not come with force and with might to crush his enemies. Rather, he came humbly. He came gently as a servant. And the works of Jesus throughout Mark's gospel will illustrate this, which brings us to the key verse in the book of Mark. The key verse is Mark 10, 45. And it says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That really is the gospel of Mark in a nutshell. It is this show-me gospel where Jesus shows us a life of humble servanthood. You know, it's interesting that there is no genealogy or birth narrative in the gospel of Mark. Um, as there is in Matthew's gospel, right? It's in Matthew that we have the begat, 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 was so-and-so, was the son of so-and-so, and we don't have that in the book of Mark. Um, in fact, in Mark, Jesus is probably around 30 years of age, and it starts with him being baptized. Why do you think that is? Well, for one thing, a Jewish genealogy wouldn't be of much interest or importance to Mark's Gentile audience, Right? But for Matthew's Jewish audience, it was very important to connect the dots and see where Jesus is coming from and how he fulfills prophecy. But there's another reason that Mark does not include a genealogy. In that culture, the lineage of a servant or a slave, would anybody care where a slave came from? Nope. What was important? Well, that the slave does what a slave is supposed to do. Doesn't matter where they came from. Not important. Slave. Do slave stuff. 
Be a servant. And so again, as we focus here on Jesus as the suffering servant, the ultimate servant, where he comes from is not nearly as important to Mark as it is to Matthew. Again, consistent with Mark's audience and purpose. The theme of active servanthood is reinforced by a key word, and I find this to be fascinating. There's a key word that appears over and over and over in the book of Mark, and that key word is the Greek euthus, which is translated in the ESV as immediately. Uh, Some of your translations might be forthwith or straight away. Um, A lot of times it's translated as immediately. The term is used 59 times in the New Testament, And check this out, 41 of them are in the book of Mark. 41 out of the 50 times. 11 of those are in Mark chapter 1. It's actually kind of exhausting to read Mark chapter 1. You can't hardly keep up with Jesus in Mark chapter 1. Jesus is constantly on the move, immediately going from one place to the next. And that would have appealed to Mark's Roman audience, for you see, in that culture, they were a people who valued action. Thus, Mark demonstrates Jesus in action. He doesn't stay in one place very long, but immediately moves to the next. One of my favorite baseball card designs is 1972 Tops, right? And this is my favorite player, Johnny Bench, on one of my favorite sets. And so, by the way, if you have any of these in your attic, I'm your guy, okay? So um, anyway, one of the interesting things they did in this 1972 set, they added a subset that was somewhat radical for its time. And the subset was in action, right? Um, These were not just pictures of baseball players posing like the one on the left. These were actually photos from a game where the player was playing, you know, pretty novel concept. Well, this is how Mark portrays Jesus in his gospel. This is Jesus in action. Jesus on the move, immediately going from one place to the next. Is there teaching in the book of Mark? Absolutely there is, and we will camp out in those places of teaching. But more importantly, in Mark's gospel, there is action. Jesus victoriously living out the role of the suffering servant and thus inspiring Roman Gentile believers who themselves were suffering. So that in the intro is the author, the audience, the theme, the key verse, the key word. Um, Let's look just briefly at the very first verse, which sets the tone for the whole book. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Now, each one of these words is weighty and contains significant meaning. I feel like each one of them could be its own sermon, but if we did that, it'd be a decade before we get through the book of Mark. So, but let's look briefly at each of them. First of all, the word gospel. Um, you know the drill here. We talk about that word gospel a lot. Greek euangelion, which means good news. But listen carefully. I think I learned something new as I was going through this week. In that time, in that culture, it was used in the context of a certain kind of good news. You see, first of all, the gospel for Jews, the good news for Jews, as they would use the term, and we're not going to take the time, but if you go back into some prophetic passages, they actually use this word gospel or good news. Um, Good news for the Jews was God's reign. 
God's reign, as foretold by the prophets, the Messiah would come, take his rightful place on the throne, and rule in righteousness, destroying Israel's enemies, making everything right again. This is how the Jews understood the term gospel, the good news of God's reign. But the Romans, they also used the term a little bit differently. For them, it was the good news of the emperor's reign. It was the good news of the emperor's reign, that he would rule the world and that the empire would prosper. This is how Romans understood the term gospel. But watch what Mark does in Mark 1.1. He takes that term, understood one way by Jews, another way by Romans, and he applies it to Jesus. The gospel for Mark is the good news of Jesus' reign. The good news of Jesus' reign, which would have rocked the world of both Jews and Roman Gentiles. For Mark is saying that this guy, Jesus, that Mark's going to write about, he is the ultimate Jewish king. And Jews are like, whoa, wait a second. And then for the Romans, in essence, Mark is saying this Jesus, he is the ultimate Roman emperor. This Jesus is, in fact, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the true gospel, the true good news is that when Jesus is on the throne, that's gospel. That's truly good news. So when Mark says that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's making a very bold and provocative statement in that culture, challenging the thinking of both Jews and Gentiles and us. The next key word is Jesus. Jesus. Um, This is simply our Savior's human name. His human name. It was a common name at that time. I named my son Jesus. Did you know that? What's my son's name? Joshua. That's the Hebrew equivalent of Jesus. It literally means Yahweh is salvation. As the angel said in Matthew 1.21, you shall call his name Jesus, Hebrew Joshua, for he will save his people from their sins. So in a very, I love this, and this is so significant. In a very literal sense, salvation is Jesus' name. It tells us who he is. It tells us what he's about. It tells us about his heart and his character. He is salvation, the person. It's his name. Next key word in Mark 1.1 is Christ. Now listen carefully. This is not Jesus' last name, okay? It isn't even a name at all. Christ is a title. Jesus is his human name, but Christ is a title. It's a royal title, which means anointed one. In this context, it refers to the fact that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the anointed one. All of that is wrapped up in this word Christ. He is the one foretold by the prophets. He is the one long expected by the Jews. And he is the one who ultimately fulfills the true meaning of gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of God's reign. That is his title. Jesus is the Christ. In fact, it might be even helpful if... if, if, Jesus the Christ as opposed to Jesus Christ. The next key word, or in this case phrase, is Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which is important because it communicates the idea that Jesus is of the very same nature, the very same essence as God the Father. Jesus is divine. It's interesting that as Mark's gospel 
begins with the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God, we'll find that near the end, there is another declaration of truly this is the Son of God. Who said that? The centurion at the cross. Interesting, kind of bookends that way. This phrase, Son of God, it tells us how this gospel, this good news of a king how it, who is to come to reign, is different than any other gospel. It's different um, than that Jewish understanding of gospel, than the Roman understanding of gospel, because this king is not a human king. Rather, he is God himself who has come to reign. And finally, there's one more key word in Mark 1.1. Mark says this is merely the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And listen carefully, church. It reminds us that this gospel story continues to be written even today. Jesus has ascended, but he has sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. The Spirit of Jesus lives inside of us. For what purpose? That we might do the works of of Jesus, the kind of works we're going to read about in the book of Mark. This idea is consistent with the book of Acts. You read Acts chapter 28. Does Acts have a satisfying ending? It's a terrible ending. It just kind of stops. Why does it do that? I think it's very intentional because you know what? The story doesn't stop. It continues with us. We continue to write this gospel story. We are a gospel people, a gospel generation, living out gospel truth until Jesus comes to bring ultimate gospel fulfillment. And I fear that we greatly underestimate who we are and the role that we have been given to play in God's kingdom. So, again, that's the intro to the book of Mark. Let's next look at application. How should we then live? Very quickly, the first thing that stands out to me today, somebody here needs to hear it, failure is not final. Failure is not final. I don't think it's unfair or unkind to say that John Mark failed. Paul thought so when John Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas. And personally, I don't think it was unfair or unkind for Paul to refuse to take John Mark on missionary journey number two. But how cool, how awesome is it to see that Mark's failure did not ultimately define him. He grew through the failure and was ultimately restored and of great use to the Apostle Paul in the very end. Some of you here today, you're stuck Maybe you've been stuck for a while in a failure and Satan has convinced you that it will define you, that there's no going past it. But the story of John Mark says different, doesn't it? With God, failure is never final. He is always ready when we come to him surrendered with confession and repentance to take us from where we are to where we need to be, where we could be, where we should be. Next, number two, show and tell. My favorite part of elementary school. Seemed like every Friday we had show and tell. You'd bring something from home, you'd stand up in front of the class, you'd show it to the class, and you'd tell about it. We've talked at great length about Mark's emphasis on the works of Jesus. He portrays Jesus in action. And in the church, we need to follow Mark's lead. More works, less words. More works, less words. The world may not be currently listening to our words, but they are sure watching. And as I said earlier, 
when the world today sees the works of Jesus through us, then they will be receptive to the words of Jesus. Like Mark, we need to be about the business of show and tell. I fear there's not enough show. Not enough show. Lastly, service is greatness. Service is greatness. The overarching theme of Mark's gospel, again, is servanthood. Jesus is the ultimate servant, and so it is significant that as Jesus lives out this role of the ultimate servant, he says this in Mark 10, 43. Listen carefully. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. There's nobody greater than Jesus. He's the Christ He is the Son of God, and yet He was the ultimate servant. Why is it so hard for us to humble ourselves? And if we're going to be His people, then we must follow in His footsteps. We ourselves must be humble servants. Do servants have to do things that are uncomfortable? All the time. When did we suddenly think that, you know what, if it's uncomfortable, I don't have to do it? We ourselves are called to be humble servants, seeking to serve rather than to be served. And so, failure is not final. Show and tell. Service is greatness. I want to wrap things up today with this quote from the Life Application Bible Commentary. It says, The Gospel of Mark is a short, action-packed account, bustling with life and focused on Christ's purpose. As you study Mark... Be ready for fast-paced, non-stop action. Be open for God's move into your life and be challenged to move into your world to serve. Next week, we're going to pick things up with chapter two. We get to meet John the Baptist, and he is a fascinating, fascinating figure. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you this day so thankful for your word. So thankful for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So thankful for the healing, edifying ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is able to meet us where we are, regardless of where we find ourselves today. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray, even right now, in this moment, that you would touch hearts and touch lives exactly where they need to be touched. Some of us need a hug. Some of us need to be spurred on. Perhaps many of us need both. But God, through the truth of your word today, would you do what it is that needs to be done? And God, would you just set set the stage for us in the days to come, the weeks to come as we tackle this book, that you would just cause it to come alive and to minister to our hearts and for us to grow and be all that you would have us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.